Hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. This is episode number 327. And, you know, here we like to cover a lot of our local news headlines here in San Diego. But, you know, sometimes I like to comment on some national topics. So, boy, we've got a lot in store for you here today uh, for this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about SANDAG, which is the San Diego Association of Governments, finally getting rid of this mileage tax. We'll break all that down. Um, Uber and yellow cab taxis have come together in San Diego. It's a pretty interesting story. We'll chat about that. Um, the crisis of finding a public restroom is a big problem in San Diego and other parts of the nation. A new innovator, a new San Diego entrepreneur has got a solution to that. That's going to be fun to discuss. Um, there's a proposal in, you know, being currently considered in the state of California to raise the minimum wage, but just for fast food workers. So we'll talk a bit about that. Um, an update on the bullet train in California, talking about Target shutting down stores. The federal government is suing Amazon for being a monopoly. And there's a, a pending government Government shutdown that's looming, and we're going to talk about that. Plus, we have our San Diego Community Forum where you can get involved. So if you have questions or comments, you can just type them in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. I'll see them here on my screen. I'll get you involved in the San Diego Community Forum. But we've already got some people that are going to comment on government grocery stores, the Pledge of Allegiance, gas prices and electric vehicles, and Andrew Yang and self-driving trucks. So... Wow, there's a lot in store here today. Uh, so thanks for joining me. We're back on the Wednesday rhythm, you know, trying to get this going about Wednesday lunchtime uh, to get the live stream going. And then, you know, we have our regular, you know, release of video clips and other things that I do throughout the week. But thanks for joining me. OK, let's uh, let's hop right in and let's talk a little bit about Sandag. And. SANDAG is the San Diego Association of Governments. And this is where, you know, our local county leaders, they have one representative per city and they typically will vote or, you know, pass legislation where the, all the local governments can cooperate. And often it's usually about transportation initiatives, whether it's expansion of the freeways or funding of light rail or mass transit or, you know, it's usually transportation is the dominant issue for these folks on Sandag. And for the longest time, they had a proposal that they were considering to charge drivers by the mile, you know, and a lot of people really freaked out about that idea. They're like, you can't charge us for driving uh, per mile. That's an invasion of our privacy. That's discouraging driving. And oh, by the way, you just want to take all the money and invest it in mass transit and, you know, subways and trains. And you're essentially taxing card people to pay for public transit people. And, and there was a lot of people that were really upset about it. Well, Apparently, it's now off the table. So Sandag has scrapped this idea for a mileage tax. Um, and it was meant as a financing mechanism, not only for mass transit, but it was also a technique to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, reduce that carbon footprint in San Diego. I mean, what do you think of this idea? Now, I I have mixed feelings about it. Um, you know, on one level, I think you know, you should pay for what you use. Um, so if you're using the roads, you should pay for the roads. But on the other level, tar charging you by 
every mile you drive sounds, you know, conceptually acceptable, you know, especially if it were a replacement for the gas taxes and all the other taxes that are used to fund mass transit and fund the roads. But first of all, you know that this mileage tax would not be a replacement for all those things. It would just be an added layer on top of the existing gas tax and all the other taxes that funds transportation and mass transit. Um, But, you know, how even if you were to do this, I mean, how would you do it and how would you do it in a way that would not violate people's privacy? Because if you were to have a mileage tax, I mean, would you put a GPS unit in every car so you could see where they drive? I mean, that would be intrusive. Would you check the odometer, you know, when you go and have your smog check? That's a possibility, but those can be tampered with. You know, there really hasn't been a an explanation on how they were going to charge per mile. But I'm generally okay with the idea of pay for what you use and pay in proportion to the amount you use it. But this proposal for the mileage tax got such a heavy pushback from people that the Sandag voted against it 15 to 4. I think that's good. I'm happy to hear that. Um, And, you know, the idea behind the fee is to have a funding source to supplement the gas tax revenue. And I'm reading from the Union Tribune article here. And yeah, exactly. It's not a replacement for the gas tax. It's on top of the gas tax, which is dwindling with the proliferation of more fuel efficient and battery powered vehicles. Well, let me address this right now for, for electric. There's a misconception with electric vehicles. I'm a big EV guy. I'm a big proponent for EVs. And we'll often hear so many myths about EVs. And one of the common myths is, is that these guys are freeloaders. They don't pay for the roads because they don't pay for the gas and therefore they don't pay a gas tax. Well, that's true. Electric vehicle drivers don't pay a gas tax. However, electric vehicle drivers pay an additional line item layer on our um annual registration fee, you know, for our car. And I can't remember exactly how much it is, but it's like around a hundred bucks a year, something like that. You might argue that's not enough. And that's certainly debatable. Um, and it's not in proportion to usage, but still EV drivers do pay for the roads um, to say nothing of all the income taxes and property taxes and sales taxes that EV drivers spend on to fund roads. But yeah, definitely cars are getting more efficient. So less revenue is coming from the gas tax. And, you know, these central planners here in in Sandag are freaking out about that. And like they had this grand vision for subways and tunnels and, and, you know, light rail elevated overpasses and this, you know, utopian system that was going to cost a ton of money and radically transform the way San Diego culture like works, the way the whole system works. They also wanted, they specifically said, we want to discourage people from driving, you know, because of carbon emissions. They want more people on mass transit and all of this. And part of the plan is, is that Sandag had reimagined this idea of these kind of walkable communities that um, had integrated commercial and residential space, pedestrian friendly villages, bike lanes and and that sort of thing, which all I think is a great idea. But a lot of these mass transit initiatives, I mean, you got to lay rail and that's expensive. And when you put in rail, your train car can only go where the rail is. So as a result, you know, you still can't always get to where you want to go. 
I mean, granted, if you want to build a, a rail system like New York City or like Tokyo, you, you, you'd have to install so many miles of, tra- uh, of track that it would, be, it would take forever and it would be unbelievably disruptive. And frankly, I don't think they're ever going to get anywhere near that kind of density or that kind of market coverage. You know, and that's why I've always said, you know, self-driving cars are the solution here because you don't need to build more infrastructure. You can still get people emitting less carbon when the self-driving cars are EVs. You can still have more walkable, um, pedestrian-friendly communities um, and people could just hail cars as they need them. And that would still work. And it would work a lot more efficiently than what we've got. But there is this romantic <laughs> idea with trains. It's unbelievable. So the plan that was scrapped was that they were going to have a 3.3 cent per mile gas tax. You might be thinking, okay, how much is that? And I, I did the math. And so if you drive 15,000 miles a year, which is basically what I drive, that's $495 a year. Now, you might say, Riley, you just said that your, your um, fee on your DMV registration every year is only, and, and I wish I had the exact number in front of me, but it's only about an extra hundred bucks. And, but really, you, you, you should owe $495 a year if you're driving 15,000 miles. Well, First of all, um, this is in addition to the existing gas taxes and to fund all of this mass transit that I wouldn't use, number one. Number two, a lot of those miles are when I'm on a road trip, when I'm driving up to San Francisco. You know, I've taken my EV to Albuquerque, to Ely, Nevada, up in northeast Nevada. I've driven to Vegas and Tahoe and Reno and Sacramento and San Francisco. I love EV road trips. Well, the Sandag shouldn't get taxed by the mile for all the miles I drive outside of San Diego. And if you re- if you removed a lot of that, then I'm sure that my numbers are significantly less on a per mile basis. But, you know, Amy Reichert, who's one of the candidates for San Diego supervisor, she's running that special election because Nathan Fletcher got in the sexual scandal and had all these other problems. Um, she's been really loud about being against this Sandag tax. And, you know, good for her. Um, There's been other politicians, particularly the ones that live in maybe more affluent areas of San Diego or more rural areas of San Diego that tend to be more maybe Republican that have been against this. But public, you know, uh, opinion has really shifted. And now public opinion has really driven Sandag to take this whole thing off the table. Now, some people spoke at the Sandag meeting and they said, San Diegans cannot afford to pay more to drive their vehicles. I say no to any road charge at any level. And I do not believe in being tethered as an American, being controlled in my driving habits. Uh, you know, La Mesa council member Jack Shue who's in favor of the road user charge and advocates for higher fees in high traffic areas, argued that per mile chargers are more equitable than the current gas tax, which he says penalizes people who cannot afford electric cars. Okay, that there is some truth to that. I mean, because EVs don't pay a per mile or even a per gallon. They just pay a flat rate. And you're right, that that isn't proportional but still, EVs are less than 5% of the market right now. And, and yeah, it's going to grow, but it's not going to become like 90%. I, although I think that's what Gavin Newsom and a lot of other officials think they're going to get out of this. But anyways, I'm just happy that it's been 
shut off as an idea. Um, because I don't think the way they would implement it would be fair or reasonable. Conceptually, I'm on board if they did it the right way, but you know they won't. Um, but it's just another social engineering scheme um, that I, I just didn't get. And, and you know, we're always complaining about the cost of living and how expensive it is to live in California when it comes to housing and energy and transportation and insurance. And, I mean, food prices, gas prices are $6 a gallon. Everything's so much more expensive. And a lot of this is because of the government policies that are implemented. And here is another case where they want to make it even more expensive. You know, they're talking about equity. And I mean, this is going to harm a lot of blue collar guys that drive their trucks, you know, to go to work. I mean, this is damaging and, and would only make the cost of living in San Diego higher. So tell me what you think. If you got some thoughts or comments on the live stream, just uh, drop in your comment on Facebook or on YouTube. I'll see you here on my screen. We'll get you involved in the conversation. Okay. Um, got a bunch more in store. Uh, we're going to next talk about Uber and Yellow Cab Taxi, which has been an interesting development there. But just want to say, hey, if, if you enjoy what you're seeing here you know, with the John Riley Project, I'm covering local news. A lot of times I have guests here on the podcast. Um, if you want to learn more about what I'm doing, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. Uh, there are all of our Previous episodes are there. You can send me a note if you want to, you know, schedule an appointment or you want to recommend a guest or maybe you want to be a guest. Go to my website at johnreillyproject.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, you can make a donation there. You know, it's totally voluntary, but it's, you know, trade, win-win. I provide value to you in terms of this content. And if you want to support this, you can. You can make a voluntary donation um, a one-time, a monthly. You can do it there at my website at johnreillyproject.com. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk about this, this new news with Uber and Yellow Cab. And I think this is really interesting. Because for the longest time, you know, the, the uh, what would you call it? The ride sharing um, industry has just been under siege. Like in some cities, you know, the yellow cabs, you know, required the medallion. Remember that was in New York City and they could essentially prevent Uber and Lyft because you didn't have a license. And eventually that whole thing broke down. I mean, that was a protectionist effort if there ever was one. Um, and a scheme for government revenue, those medallions used to cost like, I don't know, like a half a million bucks, something like that. Well, then, you know, there's been this battle between Uber and Yellow Cab and other places here, even in San Diego, um, where it's been a competitive situation. Well, now it's like, if hey, if you can't beat them, join them. And so now Yellow Cab and Uber are partnering. And so when people use the Uber app, you can you know request the type of car you want. You can request if you want your own car. But if you request your own car, you may get a yellow cab taxi. What do you think of that? I I mean I think this is great. I think this is overall a really good thing. Um, you know it's it's further proof by the way that capitalism is more often based on cooperation than it is on competition. Because uh, here you got you know Uber and you've got yellow cab cooperating. So this partnership is with San Diego Yellow Cab, and starting this week, your next UberX ride 
could be a San Diego yellow cab. And it's a new alliance, a remarkable milestone for the two industries. And according to um, the Uber general manager in the U.S. and Canada, uh, Celia Gale, she said, we believe that these partnerships are a win-win-win that provide taxi drivers with more flexibility and earning opportunities, cities with fewer empty miles driven, and riders that have even faster pickups. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes you can't get an Uber because, you know, it's it's uh, surge time or there's something going on or you're you're too remote. And now there's more people that can pick you up. And so Yellow Cab participating with Uber, this is a great thing, you know, especially like those taxi drivers. They're going to have more revenue opportunity as 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 uh, ride shares. We're going to get quicker pickups. I think this is terrific. So faster response times, expanded fleet of available drivers. And this has been working really well in San Francisco. Um, now, apparently, this whole rideshare industry really took a hit in the pandemic years, you know, because people were afraid of getting the virus. So they wanted to just to drive themselves. They didn't want to share a car with God knows who. You don't know who's in there with you, whether you're not whether you're concerned about the, uh, the driver or if you have to share the vehicle with someone else. Well, thankfully, we're kind of beyond that. I'll, although I will say we're going into flu season and COVID is creeping up a little bit. I. My wife and I, we just had COVID. Thankfully, we got over it. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, that's a concern. But still, I think, you know, peop- the, driving and ride sharing is way safer from a virus perspective than getting in a San Diego trolley or to get in a MTS bus. I mean, it's way safer. Um, and especially if you're the only one in the cab other than the driver and the driver, you know, kind of has a clean operation. But I don't, I, I just like this. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Uber. I just love the flexibility it offers drivers to kind of supplement their income, to monetize their automobile asset. Um, it's given ride shares a lot more flexibility to get around town. Um, I think it's great. Um, and According to one of the San Diego cab drivers, his name is Augustine Hudoyan, he says he's eager to join this new partnership. So even the yellow cab guys are excited. So tell me what you think. I mean, San Diego yellow cab and Uber, they're competitors, but now they're cooperating. And yeah, that happens in capitalism. You know, it's kind of like Samsung and Apple. They cooperate on mobile phone technology. Apple and Microsoft cooperate on applications that run on the Apple. Microsoft apps will work on the Macintosh platform. There's a lot of cooperation. It's not dog eat dog out there that many people think capitalism is. And that's why I think that story is important to discuss. Okay. Um, Moving down the road, our next topic is going to be a little bit about this idea of finding a public restroom, which for me is a big deal. But um, I just want to have a couple of, I'd like to do these plugs in between each segment. Um, Hey, I I have this other podcast that I do with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. It's all sports. If you like San Diego sports, uh, United States sports, even international sports, we cover it all. Baseball, football, basketball, hockey, tennis, F1 racing, golf, soccer. Um, Hacksaw does it all. We do a live stream every Monday and Thursday at 3 p.m. So look for Lee Hacksaw Hamilton wherever you get your podcasts on YouTube. He's on every social media platform. And check out our live stream podcast that we do right here in the JRP podcast studio um, every Monday and Thursday at 3 with legendary talk show, sports talk show host and NFL play-by-play man, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Um, 
Okay. Next topic on our list is this new company that's come forward. And I, I mean, I just love this idea. And they're called Rest Space. And they're basically an Airbnb for clean restrooms. I mean, how often have you ever been on the road and you need to use a restroom right now? What do you do? I mean, if, if you're on a road, a lot of times you can go to a, a convenience store at a gas station. And usually on road trips, those are reasonably clean. Um, and, but, you know, gas stations in a lot of cities are not at all. You know, they're usually in really bad shape and not so comfortable to use. Um, but other times, what do you do? I mean, like if you're in a, a grocery store or a lot of other retail places, they will have public restrooms, but they're really only for their customers. And, you know, even those are a little bit hit and miss. Well, this company, Rest Space, has come up with a solution to this. And they have built an app that's kind of like an Airbnb, but for restrooms. This is great because think about like if you're in downtown San Diego, think about how many restrooms are out there in all these really nice office buildings, retail stores, et cetera. They're just not being used because they're private. Well, now these private restroom owners can open it up and they're charging $15 for 15 minutes. You know, when you got to go, especially if it's number two, that's worth it. It absolutely is worth it, especially if you know this is going to be a place that's going to be clean. It's nearby. And, you know, I mean, you might have to change a baby. You, I mean, there's a lot of other things you might need that privacy for. Um, you know, even people that are homeless might just need a place to go because, you know, the public restrooms are often a total fail. I mean, we talked a lot about um what was the lady's name up in Escondido that took it upon herself to clean the public restrooms in the parks? And it was disgusting. And she was doing it because the city wouldn't do it. And other cities are struggling. I know that San Diego has thought about putting in public restrooms that either are free or you got to pay a little bit, kind of like a really big phone booth that you can go in, have privacy and take care of business. But those cost an extraordinary amount of money and you know they get vandalized. They probably wouldn't be maintained. But if you have private restroom owners, they have an incentive to keep it clean. Now they've got an additional revenue source. I mean, you might be making a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks a day. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, that can add up and be quite a bit of revenue over the course of a, over a course of a month. So, this company, Rest Space, is a San Diego company, and they're developing it and launching it here in San Diego. So restrooms have been an issue for years in downtown San Diego, and now one startup is attempting to capitalize on the lack of clean, accessible restroom, restroom spaces available at all hours. $15 for a 15-minute break makes a lot of sense. And so um, the deal is, is that they're going to do a revenue share. So 70% of the money will go to the property owner and 30% of the money will go to rest space. This is just perfect. This is a perfect idea. Now, again, I'm a, I'm a big fan, not only of Uber, but of Airbnb. I like how people can monetize their assets. People can be entrepreneurs using their own property. I think that's terrific. And here is another way to do that. Um, and, you know, you might say to yourself, do I want some Yahoo, you know, coming in off the street using my restroom? 
Well, if you're getting 15 bucks for every 15 minutes, it might be worth it, you know? And yeah, you'll have to keep it clean. But if you, if you had such a facility and you let people in, that could actually be a win-win. Um, and then depending on if it's a business, then, you know, you might be bringing more people into your store. Who knows? They may go shopping after they use the restroom too. Um, but to me, this is a wonderful answer to a challenging problem. And I'll tell you, I'm, I drink more Diet Coke than I really should. <laughs> and so when I'm on the road, I'm always looking for restrooms. Um, this would be another good solution. I mean, so what do you think? If you have any questions or comments, let me know in the live chat on Facebook or on YouTube. Okay. Um, we're going to get to another topic. We're going to talk a little bit about fast food workers and minimum wage next. But um, another thought, you know, I'll just put this out here. One of the things that I've been very pleased with in this podcast is when we've had guests. And we've had so many great guests. In fact, I started this podcast in 2018 interviewing political candidates here in my hometown of Poway, um, running for school board or mayor or city council. And I still intend to do that every election cycle. Um, in fact, I welcome um, candidates from other parts of San Diego County to join me and talk about your platform and your position. In fact, one of my uh, previous guests, Fernando Garcia, who ran as an independent for the House of Representatives, he has now started his own podcast called The Independent. So if you want to check out Fernando Garcia, he's terrific. He's actually running for city council now in San Diego, and he has his own podcast. So if you know anyone that would like to be a guest or you'd like to be a guest, just go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, or send me an email. The email address is john at johnreillyproject.com, and we'll see if we can schedule you, especially if you want to talk about local issues here in San Diego County. All right, moving on, and... Here is the big dilemma here, and this is a bill that's being considered in the state of California. Should fast food workers get an increase in the minimum wage? And, you know, the San Diego Union Tribune does these sort of economic panel questions, and they, they, they pose this question. Should the – here, let me find the headline here. Should the minimum wage for fast food workers be raised? And it's in there what they call their econometer, where they go and ask all these local economists, whether they work at financial firms or they're professors at universities or they're doing research. They ask all these economists these interesting economic questions that are plaguing our our community and our neighborhoods. And everyone knows that fast food workers are making minimum wage. Some make them more than minimum wage. But, you know, they're not being paid a million dollars a year. And, and those are tough jobs. I mean, there's a lot of tough jobs that are out there. But the proposal is to raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour just for fast food workers. And the proposal would start in 2024. So, gosh, that's only a few months away. And um, it's almost $5 an hour more than the current state minimum wage of $15.50. And the original proposal that the industry wanted, or at least the workers in the industry wanted, was $22 an hour. And they've, quote, compromised to the idea of $20 an hour. And so this bill is going through the state legislature, and um, and it may be signed by Governor Gavin Newsom. I mean, what do you think of this? Now, they asked a lot of these economists, what do you think of this? And um, most of them said no, but some of them said yes. And 
Um, one person, Norm Miller, who's an economist at the University of San Diego, he said no. And he said, this is just going to encourage more replacement of workers with automation and with customer self-service, which is true. I mean, remember back in the day that you used to, when you ordered a soda, you would get it from behind the counter at McDonald's. Now you got to serve yourself. Um, now you've got to clear your own table and bust your own table. And they've done that to eliminate employees. So there might be more customer self-service. There may be more automation in terms of, you know, ordering on an iPad um, rather than ordering from a human. Now, others like Lynn Reeser, who's an, a local economist, she said, yes, the $20 wage compromise shows democracy working with the compromise reach between labor and industry, as if labor and industry have pre-negotiated this, but they haven't. Um, this is just what workers are demanding. And They've kind of talked to politicians and they think $20 an hour they could probably get. Um, Bob Roche, who's another local economist, he says, no, minimum wages have been proven to hurt the most vulnerable and have a negative impact on total compensation. Well, that's true, too. I mean, minimum wages um, essentially make low paying jobs illegal, make a lot of entry level jobs illegal. Raising the minimum wage harms the lowest of the low paid the most, which are often teenagers, you know, and typically there's a racial component where people of color are the ones that are going to be harmed more disproportionately than whites. But raising the minimum wage has consequences because it's it's essentially eliminating a lot of entry level jobs and saying those are illegal. So it forces companies to pay more or not hire at all. And if they pay more then those costs are you know, they kind of cascade through the market. There are a number of other economists here that had some thoughts. And um, this was uh, from James Hamilton, who's an economist at UC San Diego. And he says, no, they shouldn't do this. The wage hike will force restaurants to raise prices and lose customers. And we've already seen the price of food just skyrocketing, not just at the grocery store, but when we go out for lunch or dinner, it's already gotten really expensive. Because of the minimum wage increases that have already been happening in California, because the price of food and inflation, because the price of fuel and the transportation, all these things have ratcheted up the costs. And if they raise the minimum wage for these workers, those prices are going to go up as well. Um, David Ely of San Diego State said, no, they shouldn't do this. He says, the fundamental problem facing many workers is the high costs of living in California. Now, notice that and we just talked about that a bit, you know, with the um, with the mileage tax with Sandag. There's all these government proposals that are trying to increase the cost of living in San Diego, whether, you know, there's government policies are increasing the price of housing by limiting development, limiting supply to meet massive, overwhelming demand. That's driving prices of housing up. Government policies are leading to inflation. I mean, that's very obvious with all this COVID relief and the money that was created out of thin air and, and essentially distributed $6 trillion of brand new cash. That added to inflation. Um, transportation is expensive. Gas prices are going up. Um, you know, a lot of that because government politicians are trying to ratchet down on fossil fuels and on, and on and, um, internal combustion engine cars. And a mileage tax on top of that being proposed now here, increasing the cost for more restaurant workers. Yeah, the cost of living just keeps going up. But they don't 
so what they their quote unquote solution to address the cost of living is to make it worse rather than to make it better. Um, to me, that's nonsense. Now, um, Kelly Cunningham, who works at the San Diego Institute for Economic Research, she says, no, this is a bad idea. Heightened minimum wages prevent lower skilled, inexperienced workers from being employed and acquiring needed skills. I agree 100 percent with that. But I was kept waiting for one of these economists to come up with this other objection, which I had. And here here it is. It's from Phil Blair from Manpower, which is that, you know, temporary agency for temp workers. He says, no, he says we should not select random jobs in random industries to mandate separate minimum wages. <laughs> Finally, someone said that. I mean, why should fast food workers be singled out and get a higher minimum wage than other industries? I mean, that's the very definition of not treating people equally under the law. I mean, you're you're penalizing some industries or rewarding some workers, but not other workers in other industries. Um, if if you're going to have a minimum wage, which I think we can debate that, but if you're going to have a minimum wage, it should be the same for everybody. You know, there shouldn't be a different minimum wage if you work in hospitality than you would as a fast food worker, than you would as a, you know, some other category. If you're a business person, a scientist, um, if you are working for the government, if you if you are an entrepreneur, I mean, it shouldn't be different minimum wages by industry. I mean, that would be discriminatory and inequality before the law. Um, but Phil Blair goes on to say the job market in the United States is based on supply and demand. And he's right. And that's how it should be set. But he did say it is time to look at the ridiculously low national minimum wage rate of seven dollars and twenty five cents per hour. And. Yeah, that, you know, California, that's not applicable. I mean, our minimum wage here is fifteen fifty. The $7.25 minimum wage federally is the minimum that states are, are um, allowed to implement. But many states and localities will add additional layers on top of that, which they're free to do. But again, the more, in my opinion, they raise the minimum wage, the more damage they do to the very people that they're trying to help. Um, I've often said, you know, we need more people getting involved in jobs, getting more training on the job so they can start careers and begin earning more of their own money and then progressing from that minimum wage job up to higher tiers of compensation based on their new skills, their new experience and kind of their new um, spirit about really focusing on their own career and making something of themselves. Um, Carolyn Freud, uh, Freud of UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy disagreed with this as well. She said minimum wages by industry are distortionary. She's right. But this is something that's being considered. I mean, it's a bill that's floating around in Sacramento. They haven't voted one way or the other on it yet, but it's going to get some attention here. So what do you think? Okay. Um, Moving on down the list, we're going to get now to the bullet train, to Target. We're going to talk about Amazon and the government shutdown that's looming right now in in Washington, D.C. Plus, we'll talk a little bit in our San Diego Community Forum about government grocery stores and the Pledge of Allegiance and gas prices and electric vehicles and Andrew Yang and self-driving trucks. So much to discuss. Hey, if you want to 
also support the podcast. Maybe you just want to buy some stuff. Um, I have a, a number of e-commerce stores. One of them is called happiness76.com. And there I have products that celebrate our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, you can also go to powwaystore.com. It's a store with a lot of Poway swag, t-shirts, hats, mugs, sweatshirts, all with kind of cool Poway logo, uh, some artwork, you know, of, of some photography here in Poway. If you want to check that out, go to powwaystore.com. And by the way, you could still get involved in the community forum. If you have a question or a comment, just leave it in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube and I'll get you involved. All right. The bullet train. Okay. This caught my attention because in my opinion, the California bullet train is an epic boondoggle. It's, it's, it's amazing how this whole thing has been going and how unaccountable it is. But apparently, um, this coming Sunday is the 15th anniversary of the deceit that cleared way for the bullet train fiasco. And this is a, an op-ed that was in the um, uh, San Diego Union Tribune. So, yeah, the, the, all of their editors, uh, you know, all of their opinion writers, you know, they kind of get together as a panel and they come up with this piece. And according to the UT, they said for years, the California's bullet train project has constantly delayed construction. Its chronic cost overruns and its laughable claims of strong management have led to well-earned scorn. They called it one of the worst fiascos in public works history in America. Because it's true. I mean, because they passed this initial bill in 2008. Remember Prop 1A, and that's what it was. And 53% of voters back Prop 1A. And, they, you know, there's this promise. We're going to get a bullet train that's going to take us from L.A. to San Francisco in a few hours. And it's going to extend to San Diego. We'll probably end up going to Vegas. And we're going to be able to not have to take airplanes. We'll be able to get anywhere we want in California in just a few hours. So it'll be great. But... Has that materialized? I mean, you know, Prop 1A passed in 2008. It's been 15 years. There's no bullet train functioning everywhere. In fact, as far as I know, I don't think they've laid any track. Um, I've driven up Highway 5 and up 99, and you'll, there are parts of it you'll see the infrastructure, the concrete overpasses. And, you know, it's generally right there in the middle of the Central Valley. I don't know. Is it going to go from Modesto to Fresno? It's something like that. But no one's using it yet. I mean, they've already exceeded their budget, and it's just costing more and more money. But one of the challenges they're having is, is that they're trying to get more private investment into this. But there was a provision in Prop 1A, which is terrific, that said taxpayer subsidies of the bullet train are banned if costs exceed revenues. But thank God they did that because – Almost all mass transit requires subsidies. I, you know, like I say, I believe in paying for what you use and not being forced to pay for what you don't use. Well, mass transit typically always operates at a deficit. You know, the riders that use that don't fully fund the total cost of it. And so they have to dip, dip into taxpayer dollars to subsidize it. Well, apparently that was taken off the table in the, in the Prop 1A plan. I didn't know that. And that's that's part of the reason why they're struggling to to build this because they're struggling to get funds. But it's been 15 years, and we're, you know we're the the, the we, they've had to increase the spending on this. They you know passed these bonds. 
53% pass it, making the other 47% pay for something that they don't want. And then imagine even if they ever finally got a way to get a bullet train from San Francisco to L.A. Well, first of all, it wouldn't go from downtown San Francisco to downtown L.A. It would probably go like from Santa Clarita, Magic Mountain or somewhere else in the L.A. basin to maybe Livermore, maybe Gilroy or San Jose, because then you would just transfer and get on BART or you would take some other public transit. And so while you might be able to get from one endpoint of the bullet train to the other endpoint in a few hours, assuming this utopian vision is accurate and it'll you know be screaming by at 200 and something miles an hour, you're still going to have to transfer to other public transportation. And by the time you make it into downtown San Francisco, it's going to be way longer than taking an airplane flight, even with the added on taxi drives on the bookends of that, of that airplane flight. Um, and then by the way, how are they going to do it? I mean, because are they going to build the bullet train to go over the grapevine? I don't think they will. My hunch is it's going to go through the high desert. Like, you know, they'll probably come as far south as Bakersfield and then they'll go out by Tehachapi and then maybe down by Victorville and then come down the, the, the mountain there into San Bernardino. That might be a more achievable goal because there's already rail lines there, too. But it may be more achievable than taking it over the grapevine. So there's still so many unanswered questions about this, but we're still paying for it. And it's the bullet train. I mean, what do you think of that? Um I, I I was against it then. I'm still against it. I just think this is nuts. And it's also this constant romance with trains. I don't get it. Um, you know, soon when these self-driving EVs become more efficient, you'll be able to flag one of those and be able to drive up to San Francisco and be in a car that can travel much faster, much safer than a human driver. You'll certainly be able to fly and do it more efficiently. But, you know, besides the bullet train, you know, they talk also about the Hyperloop. Um, what did uh, that's Elon Musk's boring company. That's another proposed idea. Um, OK, let's move on. Um, I want to talk a little bit here about Target. And you may have seen the news here that Target is shutting down stores in a lot of cities around America because of the tremendous amount of crime and theft that's been occurring in these stores. And so it was a national news piece. Um, Target is shutting nine stores across four U.S. cities, including here in California, amid a rising of retail crime. You know, and I love Target. I think Target's a great store. And it's way better than Walmart, that's for sure. And um, I get, there's a Target here in Poway that I enjoy using. And it's right there next to my buddy, um, uh, Dennis, who runs the Postal Annex in Poway. He was a great guy. If you ever need to have your utility infielder at Postal Annex to help you with rotary or mailboxes or shipping, I mean, he's terrific. Dennis at Postal Annex in Poway. But that's right next to the, the Poway Target. You know, they have the, the charging station out front, which is cool, that you can use for free. You know, they're trying to encourage you to go in the store and shop there as well. So, but a lot of these stores are closing. And what's interesting is I had just talked about the same idea in Chicago, where a lot of the grocers are moving out, You know, not just traditional grocery stores, but even Targets and Walmart that sell a lot of stuff, including groceries, they're moving out. 
because of the crime, because of the theft, because of the smash and grab, and also because of the homelessness that's adding to a lot of difficulty and security issues in doing business. And they're moving out. And so Target is moving out. They're closing one store in New York City, two in Seattle, three in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, and three in Portland. Now, what's the what's the answer here? Well, I think the answer is, is that we have to fight crime. I mean, we can think about all the different things that local, particularly local government should be doing. But the number one thing that local government should be doing is is public safety. It's it's, you know, police and fire and depending on where you live, you know, ambulance services, that sort of thing. I'd say the number two thing that local government should do is public works, you know, like roads and sewage treatment and water and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, in Chicago, Brandon Johnson, the mayor of Chicago, he's saying we have to fix this problem with the theft in these stores, these grocers moving out of town. We need to set up government run grocery stores so we can overcome this. Thinking, dude, you have completely lost sight of what's the right answer is. The police need to hold people accountable for theft. I mean, we've seen the videos of people just rolling into stores, filling up their shopping cart, filling up a bag full of stuff and just walking right out. And they know they can walk right out because there's no penalty. And as an individual shopper, you're not going to risk your life and limb to try to tackle the guy and prevent the theft, although some try. Uh, store employees are instructed just to let them walk because they don't want to have the liability, you know, of, of being sued. But it's crazy. It's like a, a moral decay. You know, I, I talk about this podcast being all about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you can't have a society that respects life, liberty and happiness if you're not protecting people from having their rights violated. And in this case, theft. That's one of the main things that the police should be managing and and watching over and preventing is preventing theft, whether they need to have a presence in locations where there is a lot of theft. Certainly, they have to be going after the thieves and holding them to account. But it's crazy how we've we've deprioritized this, even in the state of California, if people are stealing goods that, again, my understanding is like less than. 900 something dollars, it's not even treated as a felony. It's only treated as a misdemeanor. I mean, what do they want the police to be doing? I mean, they, they get upset about police, you know, racial profiling and pulling over innocent people just because they're people of color. We don't want that. We have police harassing people, in some cases, killing people, often involved with the war on drugs. I don't think they should be doing that. But they should be taking care of cases like this when there's property theft in retail stores and commercial property or in private property. You've been hearing about home robberies and and burglaries. That's where the police need to have a presence and need to be ultra aware. So it is shocking, you know, that Target is shutting down these stores. And it's just a reflection of how leadership in a lot of these cities are failing. I mean, even in the San Francisco, a lot of the Walgreens stores, first they, they started putting their goods behind locked glass, you know, doors. 
But even those were shattered and goods were stolen. And Walgreens finally said, we, we've had it. We, we're leaving San Francisco. And it's a damn shame. Now Target's doing this. And by the way, the harebrained scheme of, of Chicago Mayor uh, Brandon Johnson to set up government grocery stores as a way to overcome this increase in crime and the shutting down of grocery stores, the shutting down of access to food, you know, this creation of food deserts. If he opens up a government grocery store, he still hasn't solved the problem. There's going to be theft. People will still be stealing from the government grocery store and they won't solve the underlying core problem. So to me, I mean, it's a shame these stores are closing, but they're just acting in their own self-interest. They've had it. It costs too much money. They're probably losing money. Or certainly the profits are way down, but in many cases, they might be negative, maybe costing them cash out of pocket to replace that inventory that's stolen and to increase a lot of their own store security. And frankly, they do need to do that. I mean, stores that have theft need to increase their security. I don't know what kind of action they can take when a theft is actually taking place, but definitely there should be greater cooperation with police on this. And it's a shame to see it happen. It's like, what's America coming down to that we're allowing this sort of theft and burglary to kind of become normalized? To me, it's it's just real shame. Okay, um, two more topics we're going to talk about before we get to the San Diego Community Forum. I want to touch a little bit on this idea of Amazon because the federal government is cracking down on Amazon saying that they're a monopoly and they're trying to break them up. And you've been hearing this kind of rhetoric from a lot of politicians, particularly politicians like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that are always attacking big tech. You know, they want to break up Google, break up Facebook or Meta, want to break up Amazon, want to break up all these other companies because they're, they're too big, too powerful. They're monopolies. Well, let's look at this Amazon They're being sued by the Federal Trade Commission, alleging its retail site is an illegal monopoly. Really? Is Amazon a monopoly? No, no, it's not. But let's let me break down the article first. This is from Yahoo Finance. And Amazon, according to the Federal Trade Commission and 17 state attorneys have sued Amazon, alleging its dominant online retail store, Amazon.com, is illegally monopolizing two markets. The case represents a big test for FTC chair Lena Khan, who has made talking or has made taking on big tech the cornerstone of her future. The suit alleges that Amazon holds monopolies in online markets for buyers and sellers, blocking sellers from selling goods at lower prices elsewhere. Amazon has used a set of punitive and coercive tactics to unlawfully maintain its monopolies. Amazon uses anti-discounting measures that hurt sellers and keep other online retailers from offering lower prices than Amazon. And Amazon even replaces organic search results on its marketplace with paid ads. Oh, my God. This is bananas. This whole thing is nuts. Okay, let's break down a couple of things here. First of all, Amazon is not a monopoly. Amazon has roughly speaking, about 10% market share of all of retail. I mean, that's a lot for one entity. And if you look at online retail, well, that's like, yeah, about half. But really, I mean, we why we even, even 50% is not a monopoly. Um, but really, you really need to look at, at retail in general, 
It's not a monopoly. In my opinion, Amazon is one of the greatest innovations that we've had here in America in a very long time. I mean, I can go online and click and order something, and in some cases, it will be delivered the same day. I don't have to go shopping, hunting for things. I just go online, click, click, it's delivered. It saves me so much time. It saves me money. Besides the fact that the time is money, it saves me money. A lot of times I can get goods that are a lot less expensive by clicking on them from Amazon. I mean, heck, this podcast, all of my equipment I bought on Amazon. It's a terrific service. But, you know, Amazon gets hate because they're a big gun, just like Walmart gets slammed on because they were used to be the giant of retail. Amazon's kind of passed them up. I mean, Walmart's still huge, but now Jeff Bezos is in the scope. He's on their target list because he's a billionaire and, and people don't like billionaires. But what Jeff Bezos did to build Amazon is like an American success story. I mean, he literally built it out of his garage and he said, I'm going to sell books because that's one category I can do and I can do efficiently. And then as I grow the business, I'm going to go into other industries. And he has. Now, does Amazon have power in the marketplace? Well, yeah, of course they do. Um, do they have conditions for taking on suppliers? Well, yeah, they do. But, you know, almost all retailers do. You know, they you have to meet certain thresholds of an agreement if you're going to want to resell your products through their brick and mortar or their online. I mean, Amazon's no different. Now, Amazon said that we want to make sure that the thing that you're selling, its lowest price is on Amazon. Well, in the end, that's a great thing for consumers because Amazon's trying to drive at the lowest price. Now, of course, they don't want to see the same things they're selling being sold elsewhere at a price lower than what Amazon is selling it. So is it anti-competitive? It is, yeah, to a degree. But in the end, they're trying to strive for low prices. And a lot of times you'll hear how Amazon is bullying a lot of these suppliers. And they do negotiate and, and maybe in some cases strong arm some of their suppliers. But again, all retailers do that to a degree. And they're just working out an agreement and it's voluntary. But there are so many suppliers and manufacturers that have seen their business explode, have gotten so much bigger because of Amazon. Amazon has been a big win for consumers. It's been a big win for entrepreneurs and for manufacturers and for distributors and online retailers that have found using Amazon as another channel to sell their products. And it's been terrific. And yet they still keep getting hate. And now the government wants to break them up. And it's like you could see this coming a mile away because this rhetoric has been going on and on. Now the new FTC chair has said that's been her primary goal is to take on big tech. But when when that happens, when they end up making it worse, I mean, how many people that you know that are consumers that complain about Amazon? Very few. You might hear complaints about the working, working conditions at Amazon, you might hear complaints that they're putting small mom and pop businesses out of business, like local toy stores and that sort of thing. But in the end, it's been a huge win for consumers. And now people can buy toys and a lot of other things far less expensively, far easier. And they can just get it with a click of a mouse. They don't even have to leave their home. It's just delivered. 
almost always next day or two days, in some cases, same day. So this is nuts um, that Amazon is getting slammed over this whole thing. I mean, because I think Amazon empowers people. It's the exact opposite. I mean, we should be encouraging more Amazon. We should be encouraging more innovation to revolutionize the way we buy products, whether they're, you know, online retail stores, et cetera. They're doing something I think that's special. Now, Amazon was going to open a, a grocery store here in my hometown of Poway, Amazon Fresh. And I was really looking forward to that. They took over the Atlas market, which was an international market, which prior to that, I think, was an Albertsons. And it was going to be that new technology where you can like walk in, it would scan your Amazon app, register that you're in the store, you'd be able to put your goods in the grocery cart, and it would automatically tabulate your running total. You'd see it on a on a screen on your cart as you're walking around the store, and then you would never even need to use a checkout counter. You would just walk out and it'd bill your Amazon fresh account. I thought that was a great idea. But unfortunately, Amazon put that whole thing on hold, at least for the store here in Poway. And many other stores because they were, I guess, not as profitable as they have been recently. And they so they kind of said, OK, this is a lower priority. We're going to shut this down. So that store, Amazon's still renting it. And God knows how long of a lease they signed. And it's just sitting there idle here in Poway. It's a shame. I'm looking forward to them starting up again. I love Amazon. I mean, I think Amazon is great. Um, and uh, the the fact that you're seeing these government officials sticking their nose in this. I mean, it's probably a populist idea, but I don't like it. <laughs> okay. Uh, last topic before we get to the San Diego community forum. And I want to talk about this shutdown that's looming. And, you know, I cover here some national issues. I try to start off more local in my live stream podcast, I end up breaking this all down into individual video segments that you can watch online. But this government shutdown thing is looming. It's getting a lot of rhetoric, a lot of anger. Joe Biden and the Democrats, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans, and they're like, oh, my God, there's going to be a shutdown of the government and everything's going to go to hell. It's going to be a real problem. Okay, well, first of all, the government is not going to shut down. Okay, that number one, (laughs) understand that because the military is still going to continue. The FBI, the CIA, all the federal police, they're not stopping. They're not going on vacation. Um, Social security checks are still going out. The government will not shut down. First of all, understand that even if they don't find a resolution on this budget thing. Number two um, is that uh, there's this concept And there's even a Wikipedia article about it called the Washington Monument Syndrome. And basically what this is, is that whenever there is a government cutback or government shutdown, they will always go after things like tourist attractions or things that people have an emotional connection with and shut that down. But they won't shut down the core parts of government. They'll just shut down these what we'll call non-essential or ancillary functions of government. Like, for example, they'll close down tourists from going to the Washington Monument in New York, in Washington, D.C. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what they'll do to try to make it emotional, and they're going to show barricades around it. But the government's not going to shut down, first of all. Just understand that. Now, what are the Republicans trying to do here? Are they suddenly these fiscally conservative heroes that want to come in and balance the budget? No, of course not. The, the Republicans are 
horrible on fiscal matters, just as the Democrats are. People give Biden credit for lowering the deficit coming out of COVID. The deficit's going back up. Last I checked, the deficit's around $2 trillion a year. And these Republicans, you know, they're saying about spending cuts, but they're not trying to cut $2 trillion a year. They're just trying to cut just a little bit here or there just so they can kind of stand up on their soapbox. But a lot of this is a negotiating uh, tactic to get more money to fund the border wall um, and to fund a lot of other pet projects. I mean, the Republicans have no interest in balancing the budget, no interest in reducing spending. Maybe they want to slow down the increase in spending. But even that, I don't believe, because when Trump was in office, he spent like crazy. When George W. Bush was president, he spent like crazy. So this is just this theater that you're seeing in Washington, D.C. A couple of highlights from this article. Now, apparently hundreds of thousands of federal workers will be furloughed. Okay, let's really make sure we understand what that means. That means they will not be working, right? They'll be essentially sent home, but they're still going to get paid. Whether they get paid at the same time or their pay is going to be, you know, just a delay. Now, for those workers, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, maybe if the pay is delayed until they resolve the budget, but you're still going to get all the back pay, including the time that you were sent home to sit at your couch and 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 and, and watch, you know, television all day. You're still going to get paid for that time. Now, according to this, um, the Senate, they were trying to include... Um, Well, actually, let me read this whole thing. This says the Senate voted by an overwhelming 77 to 19 on Tuesday to begin debate on a measure that would fund the government through November 17th, as well as authorizing six billion for domestic disaster responses and another six billion for aid to Ukraine. So, see, again, they're trying to get in these little pet P or pet projects and get those paid for. But. One of the Republicans, this is Steve Scalise. Remember, he was the guy that got, unfortunately, got shot at that baseball practice when the the um, congressman had that annual baseball game. He got killed at a base, not killed. He was shot at a, a practice. But he said, the Senate bill really just continues to fund Biden's open border plan. The country wants to address the open border. We need to address the open border, said Steve Scalise. So that's what they're arguing about here, really. I mean, there's really no integrity to fiscal conservatism or to fiscal prudence or to fiscal responsibility. This is just a negotiating tactic, get their pet projects funded. And by the way, Biden hasn't opened the borders. Now, sure, there are more immigrants coming in. I mean, we've seen evidence of that in New York City, even here in San Diego. But it's not like, you know, the door is open and and unlimited people are flowing in. I mean, there's still people that are being withheld. There are still quotas. And, and in my opinion, they do need to let people in because this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. Bring us your huddled masses. This is a place that supports freedom, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think they need to encourage more immigration. I mean, not only practically because we have a labor shortage, but based on the moral footing that this is a nation based on, the, on freedom. And a lot of those people are just coming here to work. They just want to come here to have a better life. A lot of cases are trying to escape the violence and the corruption in their their home country, largely because of the war of drugs. So I say, yeah, bring them on. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But the Republicans try to say it's an open border, and it's not. And the Democrats sometimes will say it's a closed border, and Biden has been deporting people, and he has been deporting people. 
But why in the hell? I mean, he's even Biden's even expanding the border wall. You know, after all those years of the Democrats condemning Trump for this immoral border wall that he said Mexico was going to pay for, they never did. When the Democrats get in office, they just keep expanding Trump's border wall. So the whole thing is just nonsense. Now, the standoff comes four months after Washington flirted with defaulting on the nation's more than $31 trillion in debt. And yeah, that is that is a risk. But we're $31, $31 trillion in debt because these yahoos, Republicans and Democrats, have no integrity, no fiscal responsibility. I mean, whatever happened to balanced budgets? We had them for like three or four years in the Clinton administration, and those have just kind of vanished into the ether. Both Republicans and Democrats want to spend more and more and more and keep racking up that net federal debt. And they want to immorally put that burden of debt on our grandchildren and great grandchildren. It's just corrupt. It's terrible. And by the way, this article also says the funding fight focuses on a relatively small slice of the total U.S. federal budget, which is six point four trillion in total. Lawmakers are not considering cuts to popular programs like Social Security and Medicare, which are projected to grow dramatically as the population ages. Well, that's where the problem is. I mean, those two programs are not sustainable. By 2033, Social Security is going to be unable to fulfill promises because the trust fund will be depleted. Medicare was going to run out earlier in 2026, but they just did another bill to kind of kick that can down the road. But it's amazing how these guys are fighting over a shutdown. And of course, it's tribal. Republicans and Democrats are fighting amongst themselves. But let me ask you this. I mean, we've had government shutdowns in the past. Did your life change much? Probably not. You know, yeah, maybe there might have been a little bit of disruption because of air traffic control or or the um, uh, the, the, the security guys at the airport. But really, I mean, when they have these shutdowns, I mean— what happens in your life? Almost nothing. You know, some workers will be furloughed that, yeah, they're going to have something happen. They're going to be suffering, but it's only temporary and they're going to get back funded for all this in the long run. So you're going to hear all the squawking and guess what they're going to do at the end? You know, they're going to do this. They're going to end up passing a gigantic omnibus spending bill that's for trillions of dollars. And they're going to give them like probably less than 24 hours to read it and vote on it. And they're going to probably approve funding for another three months or four months, and we'll be back to the same problem again. And because it's in this funding of an omnibus, omnibus bill with everything packed into it, there's no debate. It's pre-negotiated behind the scenes in, in smoke-filled closed rooms where they do the deals. And the the uh, congressmen and senators that have to vote on this, they're told, hey, you need to vote for this in, in 24 hours or we're going to have economic Armageddon. You don't want to be blamed for that. And so they end up voting for it. And the thing is like 3,000, 4,000 pages. It's impossible for them and their staff to actually review it. The whole process is just nonsense. And that's where we're going with all this. So keep an eye on it. I'll probably report on it as we get well, as we get you know, into October and we see what kind of updates come from this. Okay. Now, it's your turn. Now we're going to get um, uh, our, our San Diego Community Forum. Um, I've already got some social media comments ready to go. If you have a question or comment and you're watching on the live stream on YouTube or Facebook, you can type your question in and I'll see it here on my screen. I'll get you involved. So if you want to talk about 
Sandag, mileage tax, Uber, this this Airbnb for bathrooms, minimum wage for fast food workers, the California bullet train, Target, Amazon, federal shutdown, or anything else, uh, type it in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. Okay, I do want to go into the community forum, and here are some social media comments. And this first one is from R.P. Damson. This is Rebecca. I know Rebecca. She lives in Ohio. She's a a good friend of a friend, but we politically are in different spaces. And I had done this uh, podcast talking about Chicago, setting up government-run grocery stores, and how it was such an utterly ridiculous idea that the government in Chicago should be going after crime. Um, so these big grocers aren't moving out in the first place and also reducing regulations and taxes to make it easier for entrepreneurs to open up local grocery stores. And Rebecca said, read the secret life of groceries. Our abundance is at other people's expenses. And then she had two other comments and I kind of jam packed them all into one. And she said, and please do tell your ideas to stop homelessness and crime. And, you know, because obviously it's easy from your seat in Poway, one of the most affluent places in the United States. Okay, let's break all this down. Okay, I haven't read the book, The Secret Life of Groceries. It sounds interesting. I did a quick scan on what the book was about. And the book is about, um, you know, some of the the labor practices with farm workers, um, and they're, they're, these are some legitimate points. Okay, that that are made in the book, just from the headlines I saw. Some of them are the ways that suppliers um, will get sort of strong armed by the retailer, you know, and of course the game on how goods are displayed. Um, you because you always have the reps coming in and rearranging the shelves, and who gets the end caps, and who gets you know top shelf versus bottom shelf. You know there. Are, I'm not saying that the grocery industry is this beautiful, virtuous model, but it's pretty darn good. I mean, we go into a grocery store in America and there is endless amounts of produce and meat and and other kinds of goods. It's amazing, really. And even as amazing as grocery stores are, a lot of times they don't have what we want and we could still go and order things online and have them delivered to our house, which is even better. So we live in an era of abundance. In America, it's unbelievable. And in most Western countries, it's unbelievable. That's why I brought up the topic of Boris Yeltsin when he was the, what was it, the prime minister or the president of Russia? This is before Putin. He came out to America. He went to Houston to go to the Johnson Space Center to, um, to uh, what do they call it? Um, Control center, you know, there where, where um, NASA manages all their space flights. And while he was in Houston, he went into a grocery store. He couldn't believe it. And this is in the early 1990s about all the selection, all the things. So this abundance, does it come at other people's expense? Well, yeah, but the people that are supplying these products, they're getting paid. It's trade. Now, we can talk about in some cases, are those workers being treated unfairly? Okay, that's probably true in some cases, and those cases need to be addressed. But if the mayor of Chicago set up a grocery store that was run by the government, that's not necessarily solving all these other problems that are in the grocery industry. That's not making it better working conditions for migrant farm workers. That's another reason why I think our whole immigration policy is ridiculous, because 
a lot of these immigrant farmers come to America and they're kind of some of them are held hostage on some of these farms with their 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 uh, vital records, their paperwork, you know, kind of being held by their employer. But the only reason the employer has leverage on that sort of thing is because immigration has been so um, difficult and bureaucratic and 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 cumbersome to immigrate to America. If they just made immigration easier, then people would be coming here, would have legal jobs, and a lot less of that corruption would take place. But Rebecca goes on to say, and please do tell your ideas to stop homeless and crime. Well, I've talked a lot about that on my podcast. Homelessness is a multidimensional problem. The short-term solution for homelessness is that I think it makes sense for local governments to ban camping on the right-of-way, sidewalks, that sort of thing. But some cities can set up locations where camping can be legal. And then in the short term, the homeless have a place to go, and it's a place that's managed. It's a place that's overseen by the police so that you know, the crime and riffraff is managed. That's a good short-term answer. The other short-term answers are trying to provide you know, ways to get them into shelter beds, and there's apps that are helping people do that. That's all good, too. The long-term answer to, to homelessness is just to build more houses because most people – that go into homelessness are going into homeless because housing's too expensive. Now, some people want to increase the minimum wage for fast food workers, but that's not going to solve the fact that housing's still super expensive. And the reason housing is so expensive is because there's way more demand than there is supply. And the reason there's not very much supply is because local governments and, and NIMBY activists have been preventing building and preventing construction in their areas, keeping open areas zoned for open space, keeping residential neighborhoods zoned for single family homes. That's preventing or slowing down the progress of more multifamily, more high density building, which in the end is, is constricting the supply and therefore raising the price. So government needs to focus on its core competencies, crime prevention, infrastructure, being the two, you know, public safety, I should say, more broadly than crime prevention, because that involves fire and in some cases ambulance. And then the second priority has to be infrastructure. That's where the government, local government priority should be. So, yeah, they should be addressing crime by having a greater police presence in some of these neighborhoods, having a greater police presence um, around stores where there's been theft to discourage uh, theft. They need to be passing laws to hold criminals accountable, even if they're stealing less than $900 worth of goods. That's what we expect from local government. And then she finally says, oh, it's easy for you from your seat in Poway, one of the most affluent places in America. Well, yeah, I don't apologize for living in Poway. Poway is a great city, wonderful place to raise children. I've lived here since 1996. Um, And yeah, is it an affluent area? Parts of Poway are affluent. Absolutely. That's true. But that doesn't mean that my opinion is invalid. I mean, if anything, the proposals that I bring to the table are going to help people in impoverished communities 
to encourage more entrepreneurs to set up more local grocery stores and have, have greater access to more goods and services. I mean, even when it comes to education, I'm trying to promote those same ideas of voucher programs that give children in low-income households in communities with, with weak government schools to give them access to higher quality schools, whether they be public or private, religious or secular, by using a voucher program to give them an opportunity to escape from bad government-run schools. So yeah, yeah, from, from my, my affluent place in Poway, of course, my opinion is valid, and this is my podcast, and you're welcome to comment, and I'm always happy to have guests. And Rebecca, next time you're in San Diego, I invite you to come here. And I know you're, you're very active, uh, progressive, and bravo, and on some issues, we are very aligned. Like, for example, on, uh, on the pro-choice um, notion with abortion. Uh, and being anti-Trump, you and I are very aligned there, but we differ in other areas. But I welcome to have you join me here in Poway, one of the most affluent places in America, to sit down and have a conversation. Okay, moving on. Um, I had done a podcast episode last week about Iowa requiring the Pledge of Allegiance. And I got a comment here from Sheepster Bro, and he said, why not? Because teachers just put up other flags that they don't have an American flag anyway. If you don't care about America, then graduate and stop caring. <laughs> I ex- kind of expected that kind of a result- response. So let me tee it up again. I think the Pledge of Allegiance is a ridiculous American custom and ritual for a lot of reasons. Now, I don't have a problem with being proud to be an American. In fact, I frequently tout the Declaration of Independence and our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the whole idea that all men are created equal and equality under the law, which is supposedly protected under the Constitution. But pledging allegiance, that whole concept is saying that you are subservient to some higher power. And in this case, government, it's that you are bending a knee to Joe Biden or bending a knee to Donald Trump. I'm like, screw that. America is built on freedom, independence. I mean, the line in our Declaration of Independence, you know, saying you have a right to the pursuit of your own happiness might be one of the most revolutionary ideas ever written into a core government document. That's basically encouraging people to rebel against the system and to live for yourself and for your own values. And that's tremendous. That's the American dream. That's why a lot of people move to America is to escape a lot of the oppression they've had in other countries, whether it's from their church or from their government or from their culture. They come here to be more free. Frankly, I would hope they could be freer. But the Pledge of Allegiance is a silly idea. Why would you pledge allegiance to a flag or even pledge allegiance to the Republic of the United States of America? You should never pledge allegiance to some government bureaucracy, some um, authoritarian, some higher uh, disciplinary person. I mean, that's just that that's almost religious in its connotation. 
to say nothing of the under God part of that. I even suggested that we could still have a patriotic moment. If we, if we really wanted to have a patriotic moment for school children, they should recite the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal by their creator and endowed with certain inalienable rights that include the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you were to use public schools as a way to indoctrinate children, that's the message, not the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I like the last part, with liberty and justice for all, but the whole rest of it should be abandoned. And just because I'm saying that doesn't mean that I don't care about America. I'm, I'm saying it because I do care about America. All right, moving on. Um, this is from Sharon. And Sharon, I'll give you a heads up, was a former neighbor of ours, a good friend. And she has since moved out of Poway, moved, lives up in Northern California. And uh, th- this is also indicative of my podcast. I get attacked by people on the right and on the left. I'm just telling about my friend Rebecca, who attacks me from the left. Now, Sharon is attacking me from the right. <laughs> and I had talked about... gas in San Diego. Oh, my God. And who's to blame? Is it Biden? Is it these oil companies? I mean, what's going on? And I made a point that I said, you know, we've opted out. Um, You know, we drive electric vehicles. They're powered by solar. We don't even pay attention to the gas prices. And Sharon said on to say, Sharon went on to say, dirty, unethically sourced materials from hostile countries and the $75,000 price tag to replace my vehicle Right now, the cost advantage is questionable, and it just causes new environmental and ethical problems. That's why. (laughs) That's why she hasn't made the move to an electric vehicle. Okay, let's break all this down now. Okay, first of all, you can get an EV for under $30,000 brand new. The Chevy Bolt with a B is under 30 grand. There are others that are right around 30 grand. I think the Nissan Leaf. Um, there are other electric vehicles that are in the 30s and 40s. Now, if you want a really high-end Tesla or a high-end uh, Polestar, there's a lot of exotic EVs that exist. And those, yeah, 75 grand and up, like probably what you'd be spending for a high-end Mercedes or BMW. And that's, you know, when your car is a status symbol, when your car has all the bells and whistles and gadgets that you like. But you can get an EV for a lot less. You can buy a used EV for like 15 grand, 10 grand. They're out there. So the $75,000 price tag is another one of countless electric vehicle myths. Um, Are the source materials taken unethically? Is it dirty? Are they from hostile countries? Well, sort of. Um, So... Are some of these precious elements, uh, rare earth elements, coming from China? Yes. Um, but a lot of this is changing now. I mean, they, they've just discovered huge lithium deposits underneath the Salton Sea in California. They, they also discovered more tremendous amounts of, um, of lithium. And I think um, there's one other element that they discovered, giant deposit up in northwest corner of Nevada, kind of near where Nevada touches Oregon, way up there, very remote location. Scientists in labs have been able to synthesize a lot of these elements. So we're getting to a point where we won't have to 
depend on a lot of these materials coming from either hostile countries or coming unethically. But in a lot of other cases, this has been a boon for certain places that they've been able to develop their economy. Because, you know, worldwide poverty is in steep, steep, steep decline as more and more places abandon socialism and embrace free markets and, and, and free enterprise and capitalism. We're seeing that all throughout parts of China, Southeast Asia, India. It's, it's really starting to really gain momentum in Africa. So this notion of ideas of freedom and individual rights will not only expand more capitalism to provide greater access to all these source materials, but they'll be able to do it more ethically by protecting the rights of those that are, that are mining the product. But at the same time, I think we're going to, there's been huge advances in electric vehicle technology over the last 10 years, over the last five years, with not just with battery technology, battery capacity, there's huge advancements being made in self-driving capabilities, um, huge advancements being made in infrastructure for um, charging stations and not just government subsidized. I mean, private industries are installing charging stations in private parking lots and charging people to use them. And it works great. I've been driving my EV. I've I've driven it from San Diego to Albuquerque, to Ely, Nevada, to Reno, Tahoe, Sacramento, San Francisco. No problems at all. I've driven in desolate deserts in Eastern Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada. Not a problem because there's already a lot of infrastructure that exists and they're building more. So, There's a lot of myths related to EVs, Um, but here in the the end, you don't have to pay $6 a gallon for gas. We pay nothing. Uh, We, we, well, I'm going to say nothing. We, we have solar on our house. We pay for our solar system, but many months our solar panels generate a surplus of energy that we send back into the grid so that the electric portion of our bill is zero. We charge our cars at night when the EV rate off the, off the grid is extremely cheap. But then all during the day, we're generating a ton of surplus and those photons are converted to electrons and sent back into the grid in which we get a rebate. So in the end, it's almost like we just don't pay attention to gas prices. And usually when gas prices go up 20 or 30 cents, people are really freaking out because it makes a big dent in their pocketbook. And I remember that was my way when I was younger. Um, But in the end, I think you're going to see more of this evolution of this technology. And if it's not going to be more EVs, we're going to have other alternative energies, whether it's hydrogen or or natural gas. They're going to be used to power a lot more of these vehicles. And I think over time, my vision is, is that there's going to be more EVs, more self-driving EVs that will be like an Uber that you can hail That'll take you wherever you want to go from your doorstep to your final destination, unlike rail, which will only take you where the tracks go. And those EVs will be able to travel in tightly packed swarms, you know, as a computer controlled group where they almost are indirectly like a a subway or a trolley with cars all linked together, moving fast down lanes of existing infrastructure of the roads that we have. And be able to do it more efficiently with less traffic problems 
And ultimately, I, I think that's where we're going to see the advancement. I'm a, I'm a big uh, cheerleader for that. Um, many people don't like the ideas. They, they resist change. But if you got a comment, let me know. And here's my final comment. And this is about my topic in my last podcast about the Teamsters Union in California that was pushing a bill through the, the California legislature to make it a requirement that semi-trucks that are, quote, driverless have a mandate that there's a human in the cab just in case, right? And this was from the Teamsters because obviously they're, they're feeling threatened that their jobs are going to go away. Um, and I got this comment from New Tone Producer, and he says, I think it's ironic that you're calling Andrew Yang a Luddite while you mis- misrepresent his views on AI and self-driving cars. Okay, I did reference a- uh, Andrew Yang because he's been a futurist. He was the one in the 2020 presidential campaign warning us about artificial intelligence, warning us about self-driving trucks, and the whole trucking industry is going to likely be automated. And where are those people going to get jobs, yada, yada. But I never called Andrew Yang a Luddite. Who I really was calling a Luddite were the the Teamsters Union. They're the ones that are trying to fight progress. They're the ones that are trying to mandate a human be in a driverless truck. And they say they're doing it for safety reasons. But really what they're doing is they're doing it for job preservation reasons. And ultimately to resist this competitive threat to their industry, to their jobs. And by the way, they're not their jobs. The job is an agreement between a company and an employer or an employee. The employee, it's not the employee's job. They don't own it. They're only there through mutual agreement with their employer. But Andrew Yang, he was one of the more refreshing presidential candidates in 2020. I didn't agree with a lot of his ideas, but I did like kind of the fresh face and the new approach. I think he was way off base with universal basic income, but he's right in warning about the threat of, or the, or the, not the threat, but maybe the enormous benefits of driverless trucks, because there's a huge shortage of drivers for trucking. I mean, heck, my stepfather was a truck driver for the longest time. One of my stepfather's really good friends who was doing the commute between San Francisco and LA, he died in a, in a truck wreck when he fell asleep at the wheel driving up Highway 5. So humans are extremely unsafe in the way they drive. I think as this self-driving technology improves, it's going to be way safer than humans that are on CB radios or on telephones, humans that are um, distracted with their own driving, with other people in the vehicle. Um, Automated driving is going to be safe, predictable, 24-7, you won't have tired drivers, you won't have drunk drivers. I think there's enormous upside to this whole idea of driverless trucks. And in general, I'm overall an optimist when it comes to AI. Artificial intelligence is going to make human life better, human life easier. Is it going to replace some jobs? Yeah, but it's going to make civilization and society better overall. It's going to help create brand new industries with new jobs that pay more. AI is going to take rote work or routine work that can be automated. 
uh, and free up human the human mind and human capital and financial resources to invest in new technologies and new industries to make life better. I, I, I see AI is, is 90% positive. And I know a lot of people think we're going to be going back to the Terminator um, and Skynet and, and robots taking over the world. And that's like Battlestar Galactica with the robots, you know, fighting back, you know, the toasters fighting back against the humans. I I just think that's dy- dystopia, that's science fiction, that's creative writing. But in the end, I think there's going to be huge upside. It's going to make current workers more productive, happier, more creative in the work that they do, and the drudgery of mundane work is going to be mo- uh, is going to be automated. And that's a net win for society and for and really for individuals overall. But yes, there will be some disruption of people that are in those mundane, labor-intensive, routine jobs, like truck driving, maybe burger flipping, a lot of those things. Some of those things may be automated, but I think that's ultimately a good thing. Okay, an hour and a half of the John Riley Project. Uh, thanks for being with me. Uh, another live stream. I'm really happy today that I was able to execute um, you know, right around lunchtime on Wednesday, I'd like to start promptly at noon. That's my goal. Uh, it just takes a while for me to get prepared. I just got to start earlier. But I want to stick back to this regular Wednesday rhythm, and that works well. Then I can kind of release my my segments and my vertical uh, one-minute shorts. I can do those throughout the, the uh, week as well. But I'm also doing my podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. So if you love sports, check out Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Um, whether it's on wherever you get your podcasts, um, on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threads, TikTok, <laughs> hacksaws everywhere. Check out that one. And we live stream every Monday and Thursday on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter every Monday and Thursday at three o'clock. So if you're a sports fan, be sure to check that out. Okay. If you have any more questions or comments about the podcast, go to my website, John Riley Project. If you like what I'm doing and you like saying, hey, that Riley guy's doing something nice. I like what he's doing. And um, I like he's covering local news. I like that he opens this up to other people in the community. And if you want to support me, you can. It's voluntary. You can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can leave a donation, five bucks, 10 bucks, one-time payment. You can contribute monthly. There's one guy that I listen to who's really good. His name is Jerome Brook. And he has his podcast, and I, I subscribe, I mean, voluntarily, I give him $25 a month because what he provides me with the content of his podcast is so valuable. I give him 25 bucks a month. Um, and I invite you, if you find what I'm doing valuable and you want to support it, you have an option that you can voluntarily do that. So go to johnreillyproject.com. You can make a one-time donation or a consistent monthly contribution. Um, all the money that I get for this is really going to be reinvested back in the project, primarily to promote it and to build a larger audience. Um, but anyways, thank you very much for joining me. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 327. Um, we're rolling. We're still going at this. My goal is to get to 1,000 at some time before I kick the bucket. Um, have a great day, friends. Uh, a great week. Be safe out there. And may you pursue your life, liberty, and happiness in your days uh, ahead. Take care, friends. Bye-bye. 
If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.